0: Hey there, Bill Shirk, the man about the woods. Propane, it's clean, efficient fuel produced right here in the United States. Schedule your propane service with a friend. Lakes Gas, a family-owned provider serving the upper Midwest for more than 60 years. 54 convenient locations in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Now with offices in North Dakota and South Dakota too. Lakes Gas employees live in the communities they serve, so you can expect personalized service from professionals. Oh, and the Lakes Gas offers competitive pricing without all the extras that tend to drive up fuel prices. Safe, dependable service. Lakes Gas, the right choice for your home, business, or farm. Visit lakesgas.com and join the family.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Minnesota Bound Podcast, the stories behind the stories. I'm Laura Shera, your host for today, and I am in studio with Scott Miller, who we were chatting earlier, trying to come up with his appropriate title, but I we decided upon the ultra-endurance canoeist, and when you hear Scott's story... And uh, the program he has started called Two Paddles, you will understand uh, the title of ultra-endurance canoeist. So welcome, Scott, to the Minnesota Bomb Podcast. Thank, Thank you, you for being here.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: I um, am so looking forward to hearing your story. And um, I think others will appreciate your passion for canoeing. And um, just to get started, you know, you just finished a few days ago breaking the Guinness Book of World's record, records for, is it a 2,300-mile canoe trip starting from Itasca, the beginning of the Mississippi River, all the way down to New Orleans? Yeah,
2: yeah. actually 90 miles past New Orleans. The, really? The, the, record, the official record ends at what they call the head of passes or mile marker zero, which is a specific point in the in the Delta region. It's before you're to the Gulf, but it's when the river kind of braids out.
1: And the former world record was uh, what, what? What was the time on that in the days?
2: I had it in my head solidly until recently. It was seventeen days, nineteen hours. I think forty six minutes. I and
1: think. when was that record broken? Do you know?
2: Well, that was the record uh, that was set in twenty twenty one.
1: Twenty twenty one. Okay.
2: And we just broke it by twenty three hours and thirty minutes.
1: Incredible. Now you were sharing with me the process somewhat. Why don't you share with our listeners just the adventure. There's so many details on how you get this done, but number one, um, you started in Itasca, but also you were on the canoe 24 seven. There's no shore lunches or taking a break to sleep, any of that. You were sleeping on the canoe, paddling around the clock to beat this record. Um, let's, what is it like to even prepare for that? Like how do you, what food are you bringing? In?
2: Well, it was a many-year process to figure out all the things that we did. And, and one thing we did is we had a very large, very robust support crew supporting us both on land and via two safety boats. And it was like a roving caravan. I mean, they had two RVs. They set up a mobile kitchen. They prepared food for everybody, including the paddlers. And then once every 12 hours, they would dispatch people to the river to rotate a new crew onto the safety boat. And they'd bring food for the people on the safety boat and the safety boat would hand food over to us.
1: Wow. And so how many, how long were your shifts of actually paddling? So are all four of you paddling all at the same, well not if someone's sleeping. So what does that rotation look like?
2: Well, one of the strengths of this team was that although we had a plan for our sleep schedule, it ended up being very flexible and adaptable depending on how people were feeling and depending on the conditions in the river. So most often we had three people paddling, but sometimes only two people and sometimes all four. And we adapted it. Generally speaking for about 14 hours a day, we would have three people paddling and we'd rotate somebody to sleep every three hours or to take a break. And then it ended up being that all four of us would paddle for one or two hours before or after that. But then at night, this was what we learned last time, the importance of getting at least some sleep at night. So that's where we would have two people sleep, kind of for four hours, and then the other two would sleep for the other four hours, all when it's dark, when your body likes to sleep.
1: Very smart. Now, you said last time. So you've attempted this feat before. When was that?
2: 2021, and so just two years ago. And it's, uh, it's quite the story, I have to say, because we had a rival team and the rival team was captained by a guy who he and I had been on the same team the year before and then the coronavirus came and he really wanted to go still and I didn't feel comfortable with that so we had a falling out and you know we're amicable now it's sort of a friendly rivalry but since it since everything fell apart in 2020 Both of us formed our own teams and went head to head in 2021. And part of their sneaky strategy, they were a little more flexible. So they actually left two weeks earlier than us, thinking they would have better water levels. And they did have better water levels. And so then they set the new world record. And we set off. And we were on pace to beat their record. We would have beaten their record just two weeks after they set it. But for a tropical depression in the Gulf spun up these 30-mile-an-hour headwinds that we were battling for days. (laughs) So when we got to Louisiana, we had a seven-hour lead, and then it just dropped to six, five, four, three. And by the time we were almost to New Orleans, we were basically neck and neck. And then the waves got so big just before midnight that they sunk the canoe out from under us, and the the safety boat had to rescue us. Yeah, We we never were floating in the water, but it was... uh, was quite the harrowing ending. And then the waves and the storm were so bad in that moment. And the river is so large down there. It was midnight. And there's chemical docks and oil refineries lining the banks. And there's ocean-going vessels and barges all around us and five-foot waves crashing. And everybody's freaking out. And we got on the safety boat. And the safety boat was just a little trailerable houseboat. So now it suddenly has, instead of three guys on it, seven guys. So it's kind of overloaded. And the nearest ramp to get off the river was 10 miles away. And this little safety boat was struggling in the storm and struggling in the waves, trying to find any safe harbor. And eventually, they found a little strip of sand next to an alligator-filled swamp, literally. And we ditched out there. And the waves are crashing in. And we had to spend the night there. And we didn't even get to go back to civilization until the next day.
1: Oh my goodness, that would have pushed me right over the edge. To ha- and then to think that you would go back and attempt it again. So
3: <laughs>
1: I'd be like, you know, it was the alligator swamp that maybe probably did me in. I'm good. Um, that had to have been really scary. I mean, where's there a point of, uh, do you think, is there a moment we need to call for like backup help? How so here's
2: here's the thing, right? Like if all of the fear and terror of that moment was dumped on us at once, I'm sure it would have been overwhelming. But what happened is it gradually built over time because we would have been facing headwinds for three days, right? And we had a lead at when we at first started. So, you know, if your adventure quotient or the danger quotient is at two out of 10 and then it rises to three out of 10, you're like, okay, we up, and it. then it's four out of 10. You're like, okay, and then it's five out of 10. <laughs> and then you're, the guys in the boat with me at the time you know, we're desperate. I mean, we thought we had it in the bag and they didn't want to give up. And I, to be honest, I feel like I kind of saw the writing on the wall, but I, I wasn't gonna give up either. Yeah. So we went for broke and we burned every last calorie and every I shred bet. of sleep we had. And by the, time, by the time it ended, we were all so totally spent. It was, it was, uh, it was rough. I yeah.
1: can't imagine the emotion you would have towards the end of that when you're about to beat it and then here comes mother nature. But to be like, the, no,
2: you're not. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It, again, because it happened gradually. Yes. So it was like at first we were like, okay, we're losing time, but we're st- we still have a lead. Yes. And then, oh, well, we're losing more time. And then, so it just, it happened gradually. So it, your emotions sort of changed moment to moment.
1: I bet. You know. And did that make, we do have dogs in our <laughs> office, as You can probably hear in the background. <laughs> um, do you feel like that? moment of having the, those moments of really, you know, challenging times with mother nature? Cause anytime you spend time in the outdoors, inevitably at some moment, you're going to be challenged with mental fatigue, physical fatigue. Um, do you think that in essence was, helped you even more on the second go round that you were just mentally like really ready to face anything at that point?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't want to romanticize it too much. I mean, there's a way in which it makes you feel alive and it's incredible to face danger like that. And it's sort of exhilarating. It's also true that the Mississippi River is genuinely dangerous and you have to, you really have to know what you're doing. And as much as I want to encourage people to paddle on the river, there's some caveats to that because with the barges, especially if you're in an area where there's barges, or if you're like paddling at night, no one should really do that unless you have a ton of experience. Yes. You know, And certainly, the number one rule is you have to wear a life jacket. I mean, that's the number one
3: rule, 100%. you know.
2: And there's other things too. So there's definitely a, a learning curve. But I do think that having faced all of that adversity the first time, I, for sure it helped us the second time.
1: Just with like mental toughness and getting through it and knowing that if you ex- expect some bad weather, you can push through it. I mean, I couldn't imagine a tropical storm coming at you twice, but you never know.
2: Well, and it's crazy because the number of acute challenges that we faced on the first trip, there was many of them, and they're each a good story in and of themselves. And then on the second trip, we had just as many and they were all different, which is kind of, it's fun for me, I mean, to have, you know, basically every hour was an adventure, but certainly every day, there was like multiple things that happened, like big time fog south of Lake Pepin was a total challenge at night. On Lake Pepin, we had like four-foot waves for five hours trying to cross Lake Pepin. We had ice in Lake Winnebagoches that literally went out the day before we left. We thought we were going to have to push through some ice or push around ice. And, and lots, lots more barge wakes that we you know, almost swamped us and all kinds of crazy stuff. And
1: so and you were talking about there's a certain amount of luck that is, was on your side on this um, trip to beat the world record. And that you know even starting from Itasca, you had a really interesting kind of fun fact about the Mississippi River in our state. How many miles Well, it's pretty cool
2: because Minnesota has more miles than any of the other, there's 10 states that the Mississippi flows in or between, and we have the most miles. I can never remember how much it is, but I think it's like 670, 500 of which is just from Itasca to the Twin Cities. Incredible. And and that's a neat section because for everybody south of us, they think of of the Mississippi as a commercial river but it's not in Minnesota until you get to the Twin Cities. It's pretty pristine and pretty beautiful, and there's not many people on it, be it motorboats or paddlers. And so you can have a wilderness experience really right up into the Twin Cities by paddling on the river.
1: And and then you said that what was also in your favor this time was the water levels were a little higher.
2: Yeah, they were just fantastically good. In fact, I mean, there was flooding that it negatively impacted some communities. I mean they had to shut down roads in St. Paul and I know in other cities down in Iowa and they shut locks and dams. The timing of it worked out incredibly well for us because we were it was starting to go down, which means there's less debris in the water, but it was still high enough that we had really strong flow.
1: And how much training like are you doing before you are hopping in this canoe as far as pet, and obviously being someone who's been passionate about canoeing and being a canoeist for a lot of years, you're obviously in canoe shape. Is that what you call it, canoe shape? (laughs) Yeah, I
2: think so. Well, I mean, that's what's so interesting to me is I had done a lot of boundary waters trips, and I had paddled in 2005. My friend Todd Foster and I paddled to Hudson Bay, where the polar bears live. We were redoing Eric Severide's trip from 1930 that he wrote about in the book Canoeing with the Cree. So that was my big first epic adventure, but we weren't doing that for speed. I mean, it took three and a half months. We were camping every night. We didn't care about how fast we were going. And so what's, what's fascinating to me is I like being in shape. I like doing some sports. But canoeing, in my mind, was always, it was like, yeah, this is a workout, but it's more like going for a walk. It's a casual thing, even if I'm in the boundary waters around the Namakogon River or the St. Croix or whatever. But I knew going for the world record, I would have to merge, I would have to make canoeing into an athletic pursuit, right? And never in my wildest imagination would I – have any idea. The people who are experts in canoeing fast have a million techniques that the average canoeer has no idea about. And they even have special paddles. And in many cases, they even have special canoes. But the marathon racing people, of whom there are, there are people in Minnesota in that world, but it's very niche, uh, taught me a lot about how to go fast and how to do it efficiently. So it's not just getting into shape, it's about like one example is the quieter your paddle stroke, the more efficient it is. So you can you know, use a ton of power and use a ton of muscle on your paddle and waste it all. Because what happens is if your paddle's not quiet, it means there's an air bubble that forms and you're losing all that efficiency. So you might be expending a ton of energy and you might be showing that you're a big tough person, but you're, it's, you're not actually going any faster. But if you learn proper technique, you have a quiet, a quiet paddle stroke and it's much more fast.
1: I bet. You know, I was um, we were chatting before we started the podcast, and I had taken a lesson on the proper canoe strokes, and I was talking about the J stroke and how difficult I found that. And then you said you don't even use the J stroke when you're paddling at all.
2: Right. I used to teach canoeing merit badge at Scout camp in northern Minnesota, Many Point Scout camp, and that's where I learned a ton and grew up, and it was hugely impactful in my life and i and i'm like i'm a pretty good canoeist i taught canoeing mer badge i taught the proper way to do it but almost everything i learned in that you get throw is totally rewritten for marathon canoeing because you don't use the j stroke you call what they they call a hut and so every 4 to 11 strokes or whatever is appropriate for the canoe you switch sides because then you're both the bow and the stern paddler are always paddling forward it's the most efficient you're not slowing yourself down with like a j stroke rudder stroke Obviously, it's more work to switch sides that often, but when you train for it, you just get used to it. And like if you watch a video of my team, like on our Facebook page, there's lots of videos of us paddling in perfect synchronicity because the more, the more perfectly synchronous you are, right, you, you gain a bunch of speed. Also, the better trimmed out your canoe is from bow to stern, you gain speed. So there's all these things you can do besides being in good shape. Just having good technique, you can gain a whole bunch.
1: So did the weight of what you were carrying also become a calculation of how much food you'd bring on or supplies or any of that?
2: A little bit. I mean, most of the stuff was on the support boat okay. and, and in the sh- with the shore, so we kept a minimal amount of stuff. The thing that weighed the most was, excuse me, we would um, interface with the support boat about every 12 hours. So we had to carry 12 hours worth of hydration in the canoe. And with the amount of calories we're burning, and especially as it gets hotter, it's a lot of water like a couple gallons each. I and the water wears, weighs eight, gallon, eight pounds per gallon. So there was you know, a fair amount of weight just in our, in our hydration system. OK, so
1: I'm going to ask the question that everybody's wanting to know right now is how, I'm sure everybody's asking this, how do you guys go
2: to the bathroom? It's the number one question. <laughs> I'm sure it's it is. the number is. one question. You're
1: talking about two gallons of water per person every 12 hours. I'm like, all mm. right, how is this happening? Because yeah. you're not standing up in the canoe to take a moment, I'm nope, sure. No,
2: we're not standing up in the canoe. We had uh, sawed-off milk cartons that were for baling but they also served another purpose.
3: Okay. Um,
2: And then actually, and and this is sort of uh, crazy, but we had a mantra that anything you can do in the canoe, you should do in the canoe, because even if no one's paddling, you're still moving downstream, you're still gaining time. So spend as little time on shore as possible. So in our 23-foot canoe, the two middle seats were bench seats, and we had somebody make us special seats with a hole that you could pop out, and then my teammate Wally, his sister, uh, was able to get a bunch of they're called wag bags for us. And they're special bags designed for like desert environments that if you go number two in them, you seal them up and there's no smell really. Oh, okay. So we, we were able to... And then because the way our canoe cover worked, our cloth canoe cover, you could actually literally use the bathroom in the canoe and still have privacy, which was important, you know, because you're really close to each other, but at least you could have some privacy. So we would just... Go to the bathroom in these bags, seal them up, and then our incredible support crew was willing to take them from us and dispose of them properly.
1: Fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, because you're not, I mean, you're not leaving that canoe for 17 days. That's incredible. And you also said you guys were on headset at night, specifically, or when someone was sleeping, that you're in constant communication. Of course, is someone calling? this hut every time you're you're switching
2: yeah that was a difference between this team and last team last team we didn't really call huts we just visually did it when the bow person would switch sides everybody else would follow suit but it's better if you call huts because then everyone's switching at the exact same time and you you just you don't lose as much speed so we did call huts i think probably 90 percent of the time this time wow yeah. The, I mean, are you still saying that thing? word
1: in your head after you're off the water
2: how many days later? It's just like <laughs> I, when you're yeah. dreaming, it's just all you're hearing
1: is hut, hut.
2: A little bit because <laughs> I, I was in the stern a lot, so I was calling the huts a, okay. lot, a lot of the time,
1: yeah. Oh, my goodness. This is so fast. So where do you find that – where did this passion come from? Because anytime you are an extreme athlete – If you're an ultra marathon runner, an ultra canoeist, if you're doing something to an extreme, there is something inside of you that has this desire to do this. Because there's not many people that are going to sign up for 2,500 miles, 17 days in a canoe, and you're sealing
2: things up in a bag and disposing it.
1: Um, So (laughs) where where do you find that?
2: Where's well, this passion coming from? You can see from? I have the state of Minnesota on my hat. You and do. And I'm definitely a home state guy. I'm a Minnesota booster. Love it. Um, and I can't sing the praises enough of, I mean, no other state has the resources we have in terms of, for example, the Department of Natural Resources has a canoe water trail program. It, it, no other state holds a candle to, if you want to paddle on the Crow River, for example, or the Crow Wing River or the St. Croix River. You can get a map for free from the DNR or online. It's freely available for these canoe routes that show you every access point, every mile where you can camp. And then the DNR maintains campsites and they maintain accesses. It's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable resource. And then my dad actually worked for the Three Rivers Park District, Mm -hmm. which I believe is the largest park district in the state, other than probably the state park system. Mm -hmm. But um, I grew up next to Elm Creek Park Reserve in Maple Grove, which I think is the largest park in Hennepin County.
1: It is one of them, I believe. One Mm -hmm. of them anyway.
2: And it's totally beautiful. Stunning. And uh, incredible. And in fact, I would ride my bike on the North Hennepin Trail Corridor from Elm Creek to the Coon Rapids Dam and cross the Mississippi River on my bike when I was growing up. And my dad would take us canoeing because he majored in forestry and then he worked for the park district. And I remember... The park district organized for employees uh, float on the Minnehaha Creek, which when the water's levels are right, there's no ride as cool as the Minnehaha Creek. It's un, it's like 22 miles of like a Disney World uh, flume ride. It's got rapids. It's got lakes. It's got mansions. It's got little businesses. You can stop at Dairy Queen. It's inc- yes. I mean, it's just totally <laughs> incredible. <laughs> I love it. So I think, I think paddling with my dad when I was a kid and my brothers on the Minnehaha Creek and then... In the scouts, when I taught canoeing merit badge, it was my favorite thing to, to teach and to do at camp. And we used to take canoe aluminum canoes out in the lake and swamp them and play in and under and on them for hours. And then my best friend, Todd, and I were running this winter camp for the scouts, and he read well, he he had he had grown up paddling more than I had in the Boundary Waters through the Scouts, and he said, "Hey, we should do a Boundary Waters trip." And I was like, "Yes!" And I, I had no idea what I was doing, so we checked out books from the library and planned a route for ten days because we were young and in our twenties, and we could have that much time. We were independently poor, and it was like <laughs> such an amazing adventure to go for ten days in the wilderness, you know. And then not too long after that. We're running this winter camp for the scouts, and he's in the adventure section of the library researching winter explorers, and he sees the book Canoeing with the Cree by Eric Severide, who's a native of North Dakota but became famous, you know, grew up in Minneapolis. And him and his buddy in 1930, they paddled from – they figured out you could paddle from Minneapolis to where the polar bears live. And they did it, and then he wrote a book about it, which is still published fairly often by the Historical Society. It's like, in my opinion, it's like the quintessential Minnesota adventure story, you know, that you can paddle from Minneapolis to where the polar bears live. Like, who how, who would ever even think that that's true? Yeah. But Manitoba is right there, north of Minnesota, and polar bears live in Manitoba. It's not that far away, really, you know? That's
1: incredible. I don't think I knew polar do they still live in Manitoba? Yes, they
2: still do. How Chir- is this?
1: I have not heard this fact before. I know, I'm have to look this up.
2: You've probably heard of the Polar Bear Express, yes. right? People take that. That's all in Manitoba oh, on Hudson okay. Bay. Like, Churchill is where all the polar bears live, and that's just north of us, so two thousand cool. miles. You know?
1: <laughs> How many days did it take you to finish that one? And you say you're taking your time with that. So,
2: well, yeah, it actually took three and a half months. Wow! And there was actually a couple weeks that we had to take off because Todd's wrists were hurting and. Uh, and then he ended up getting replaced by my friend Matt Lutz, who, who finished the whole trip. We, these are all friends from Scouts; we okay. knew each other. So, um, so cool. That was an an epic adventure.
1: Did you see her. any polar bears at the end? This is what I, I need to know. We did not.
2: <laughs> we did not. But we saw lots of evidence of polar bears. For example, we started having seals swimming next to our canoe a hundred miles up the river. Wow! And then we saw a seal with its head missing okay. on the shore. Which I didn't put two and two together because I was too tired and it's probably good because I probably would have freaked out. But later Matt was like, yeah, that's because a polar bear ate its head. I'm sure. And then when you get to, this is the crazy part, on that adventure, which ends at a place called York Factory on Hudson Bay. It was the largest fur trading outpost of the Hudson Bay Company and it's maintained to this day as an open air museum. And there's a building there where the walls don't connect to the floors because the permafrost thaws and freezes and everything has to shift. And it has all these artifacts from the fur trade in it. And it's run by the Cree, I'm not sure which Cree community it is, but Eric Severide's book is called Canoeing with the Cree. And then the native Cree people up there run this museum. And the only way to get there is by paddling or by like float plane. And if you paddle there, you give them their your paddle and they take the York Factory brand and they burn it into your paddle. Oh, that's cool. And they walk around carrying machine guns because there's polar bears and that, that's how they are just the ready all themselves.
3: the time. Yeah. Wow. And they
2: served us moose stew from the moose they had gotten the day before.
1: Moose mm. is delicious.
2: Did it's you like so it? So good. Oh, so good.
1: It's so good. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's underrated in my opinion. I agree. Um, that is fascinating. Yeah. It's summer season, which means thunderstorms can roll on in. Are you prepared for a power outage at your home or business? The Minnesota Propane Association wants you to know that installing a propane generator will ensure peace of mind when the power goes out. Also, the same propane that powers your generator can also power all the major appliances in your home. Installing propane appliances instead of electric appliances in your home or business will reduce the size and cost of the generator. Imagine running all your gas appliances at one time versus picking and choosing which electric ones to run during a power outage. Reliable, affordable, safe. Propane, the energy for everyone. To find out more about generators and propane appliances, go to propane.com.
0: Also, a shout-out to our friends at Connecticut. You know, spring is so darn close. That means we're going to be back at the cabin. We're going to be fishing. We're going to be skiing, doing all the fun stuff. And that means Connecticut water in the woods. Last summer, we were lucky enough to add Connecticut, water at the cabin, and what a difference it has made. For as long as I can remember, we dealt with that stinky foul well water. But after a painless four-hour installation, we now have Connecticut soft water and also Connecticut's K5 drinking system. No more bottled water in the morning to try and make coffee before going topwater fishing. We've got great drinking water right out of the K5 tap. Our laundry no longer smells funny, and Connecticut water cleaned up the showers and the dishes. The world's most efficient worry-free water system. Visit Kenetico.com to find a dealer near you and join the Kenetico family. Also, we'd like to give a shout-out to Aquacide. Ah, summertime at the lake. It's all fun and games until... Weeds! Wipe out your lakefront weeds with Aquacide and make the most of your property's potential. Up to 4,000 square feet can be treated with just one 10-pound bag of Aquacide. Simply sprinkle the pellets around the weedy area and voila! pristine weed-free water. Visit us online at killlakeweeds.com and reclaim your lakefront today.
1: So, Scott, I also want to get to this uh, canoe and kayak race that you and your partner, Todd Foster, who couldn't be here today, um, have started in honor of your both of your passions for canoeing and wanting to bring it to all communities. And um, this is the second year, which is coming up in uh, June... 11th. Yeah. This coming Sunday, you are hosting um, a canoe and kayak race, and it's not just one race, it's multiple races. So, um, what, you know, share with us what, what is Two Paddles um, and why you wanted to start that.
2: I think the two biggest inspirations were the Mississippi River itself, because Todd and I had taken numerous canoe trips on the Mississippi and been so impressed with how amazing it is. You know, the 10,000 lakes rightfully get all the attention in our state, but the Mississippi River pretty big deal. Huck Finn. It's the Mississippi River. It's right here. It's pristine. It's gorgeous. The second inspiration is in training for the, to set the world record over the last few years, I, I uh, got to know this community in Missouri. They have a race there called the Missouri River 340. It's a 340-mile race from Kansas City almost to St. Louis on the Missouri River. It's been around for like 15 years. And the guy that started it was the support boat captain for my world record attempt because he's very good at... Uh, he has a whole support boat fleet to staff this race. And, wh- and he said, you're going to learn a lot if you come do my race. You should come do my race to train for your world record attempt. And he was 100% correct. And the community that's developed around that race is extraordinary. So it goes through all these little towns and there's the church group and there's the Boy Scout group serving pancakes and selling you know fundraisers as you paddle through each of these little communities. And that race was set up... I think very intentionally, to welcome all kinds of people and every kind of boat. So you've got people paddling a $300 kayak that they got at the local fleet store, and you've got people paddling super fancy boats and everything in between. Aluminum canoes, row boats, stand up paddle boards, kayaks, these th- crazy things called surf skis that I didn't even know what they were until oh, a few cool. years ago. They're in- they're incredibly fast. Uh, they were They were designed for surfing in the ocean, but it's like a cross between a surfboard and a kayak. Huh. So people catch a wave and they've got a paddle in their hand and they can ride this wave for a long ways. Really? And the, this kayak is designed; it's so skinny and long to catch these waves, kind of like a surfboard, that it's incredibly fast. So ultra endurance paddlers figured out if we take this surf ski and we put it in the Missouri River or the Mississippi River, we can win these a lot of these races. So a lot of people don't even know what, what I didn't know what these things were until recently. But the the races that I'm organizing on the Mississippi River. Uh, A kayak won last year, I think, but I think spot number two was taken by a surf ski. Was it really? Yeah.
1: Oh boy, there's gonna be controversy now over the surf ski. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. (laughs) Should it be allowed?
1: Should it not be allowed? (laughs) Well, I I give
2: strong props. We have we had lots of different kinds of paddlers in the race, which is really cool for me. So it meant a lot for me too. Like, well, who got who was the top canoe to finish? Because Canoeing is such a dear part of Minnesota, given the boundary waters mm-hmm. and everything. So I think there's a special shout-out for the top canoe to finish. And 100%.
1: We, can't,
2: we didn't have a million different divisions, but I think those people should take us. If you're the first kayak, if you're the first stand-up paddleboard, if you're the first canoe, you get a little special recognition.
1: You know, I would think so, because there, there has to be, obviously, different speeds. If I'm just doing a paddleboard, I cannot go as fast as two people in a canoe. There's just, like, right. no way, right? right. So.
2: Well, and we did have we I mean one of the races was 140 miles from Brainerd to Coon Rapids last year. This year it's 150 and I can explain why that is, but last year we had 3 people on stand up paddleboards do that 150 mile race, 140 at the time. Wow. And this year I think there's 5 people including our first stand up paddleboard woman signed up.
1: Really? That yeah. is incredible. Yeah. So to give people just an idea of of this canoe and kayak race that is happening uh, June 11th, you have multiple distances. So you have um, the 150, there's a 48 miler, a 25 miler, a 10, a seven and a half, and also what I love is, oh, there's a family challenge and also a high school challenge. So you have made it really accessible to everybody.
2: Yeah, and the seven and a half mile one is actually a guided tour. And the guides come from the Paddle Bridge Guide Collective, and they're like experts in introducing people to paddling in general and paddling on the river specifically. So there is actually a home even for people who have very little paddling experience or river experience.
1: So great. And how many people did you have? So last year was the first year. How many yeah. people did you have signed up? On your Roughly first year? 200. And how many people are signed up for this year? About the same. 200. Yeah. But considering the event is two years old right. to have that much interest.
2: Right, well, and the crazy thing is uh, the race that has the most people in it is the big race, the ultra endurance race. And that's because there's this niche world of ultra endurance paddlers around the nation and the world that look for these, there's not very many of these races. So we ha- I think last year we had people from like 17 different states and a couple different Canadian provinces and roughly similar this year again.
1: Wow, do you know the furthest distance someone's traveling to attend yet? Mm, I'm sure you'll find out. Yeah, I know
2: we had people from Florida last year. I know we just had someone sign up from Alabama this year. Wow. So those might be the farthest, yeah. And
1: where do they start for the 150? In Brainerd. Okay.
2: Yeah, there's a dam in Brainerd uh, that makes a little lake above it called, I think it's Rice Lake, and there's a park on the lake called Lum Park so we literally start at the beachfront in Lum Park and it's wonderful because everybody can be behind the buoys in calm water waiting and then the starting siren goes off and everybody can, can start all at once.
1: And for the 150, just, is everybody finishing all of these races somewhat at the same time? Is there kind of this mad rush of people or like do you start the 150, how, many, how, how long does it take to do a 150?
2: Well, so that's the beauty of it is that every race has the same finish line and the same finish. You have to finish by 5 p.m. on Sunday Okay. At, at the Coon Rapids Dam.
1: When does 150 take off?
2: At 3 p.m., 50 hours earlier on Friday, June 9th. Okay. So you have 50 hours to finish. Now, last year, the river was so high and so fast Granted, it was only 140 miles, plus we had to move the finish line up five miles to Anoka because the safety buoys weren't able to be in above the dam yet. So it was really a 135 mile race, but the winners last year, they had 48 hours last year to finish. This year they have 50. They finished in like 19 hours. They were incredibly fast. And that includes miles of flat water above some of the dams. And it includes, I think, five or six portages, some of which are like a mile long through the city of Sartell and through Sock Rapids and, and through St. Cloud a little bit. So they're not only paddling, they're also, and they can use portage wheels, but every 10 to 30 miles to 50 miles, they're getting out and portaging around, da- around a dam.
1: That's incredible. I feel like it took me almost that long just to go a short mileage on the Mississippi River.
2: Well, you know, that's the thing. It's just like training for a marathon, right? Yes. You don't start by running 26 miles. You start by running one mile slowly, and then you slowly build up. And that's the same way you train for... And and that's what's fun about this event too, is let's say you come and do the 10 mile race this year and you have a good time. Then you think, well, next year I'm going to do the 25. And then now you have a reason to get out paddling, which is a wonderful thing to do. And you have a reason to train and to get in shape. And then you do the 25 mile, then you can come back and do the 48 and then maybe the 150. And the goal is to bring back, back in the 40s and 50s, They had a race from Bemidji called the Paul Bunyan Canoe Derby. And I'm not even kidding you. A guy in the Star Tribune did a report on this recently, a story. And according to the Star Tribune, in like 1940 or something back then, there was like 20 teams. And it was a stage race. They paddled every day for like five days from Bemidji. And they said that 100,000 people lined the banks of the Mississippi to see the finish when they came into Minneapolis.
1: You're kidding
2: no, I mean, I could not believe it. But, you know, it was pre television. Oh, wow.
1: yeah. I, I can't
2: remember if it was in the 20s, 30s, or 40s when this was exactly, but. That's so cool. I, I just can't imagine 100,000 people.
1: Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I am sure for, you know, back then, that was like their Red Bull sport, like the extreme sport. And they're in awe, and, you know, just right. people sign up by the thousands to see right. that extreme type race
2: today. And if we can bring that race back, I think it could be. A little bit like a Minnesota version of the Tour de France or something. Absolutely. You know, where people can follow along and see, and they can come out in Grand Rapids, they can come out in Brainerd and see all these boats come by. And I wanted to start it at Lake Itasca, but I think, I think we probably started in Bemidji because you can, if you start in Bemidji, a lot more different kinds of boats can do it. The headwaters, the first 50 miles is so small and narrow and filled with twists and turns and rapids, and it's it's a little more technical. But anyways, that's a dream for maybe next year or the year after.
1: If you had advice for someone you know just starting out wanting to dabble in this world of racing or just canoeing in general, like what do you suggest a canoe as your first boat? do you suggest trying kayaking first? What do you think is the wow. easiest step to getting getting
2: involved? It's a great question um, I mean, I think the easiest thing to do is Mm, there's a couple different ways to go about it. I mean, you the Minnesota Canoe Association has little races that they put on on the Chain of Lakes in Minneapolis and they have Monday night rookies and you can go and hang out with them and learn. And they'll even loan you a boat if you want, if nice. you just want to try it out. Um, kayaking versus canoeing, its kayaking is a little harder on your shoulders, but you can go a little faster. Some Some people just really prefer one to the other. I like both of them. Um, certainly, a solo kayak is a much more common sight than a solo canoe, but they do make solo canoes and they're, I own one and that's what I trained with in Pool One in Minneapolis for the world record attempt. Um, so whichever catches your fancy, and then there's such a huge range of price, just like anything, sure. but start with something you can afford and then if you really get into it and you wanna upgrade, you can figure that out, you know? it's And of course, it's lovely if you can find a partner to do it with you. Yes. But paddling on a river, you have to figure out the shuttle and it's a little complicated. So, Unless you're going to go like I go, I paddle on Pool 1, which is the five miles between the Lower St. Anthony Lock and Dam and the Ford Dam or Lock and Dam number 1. And that's a fairly quiet water pool except for when the water's really up. So I actually paddle upstream and I just do a loop and come back. Oh. Um, but paddling on a lake, you know, is, it's a good, better place to start probably than a river because sure. you don't have to figure out how to navigate all the currents and things.
1: And logs or anything like that.
3: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Ron Shera here with a question. Have you ever heard of an economic first responder? That's an economic first responder. Well, it's real. Think of Star Bank. Star Bank is saving local businesses as an economic first responder in the Twin Cities, the West Metro, and rural Minnesota. Star Bank has been helping small businesses keep their lights on, pay their rent, pay their employees for months now. In fact, Star Bank has helped 629 local businesses during this pandemic. And they've been keeping small businesses on Minnesota's main streets as well. Keeping small businesses alive, economic first responders indeed. You know, Star Bank is our local hero during this pandemic. Find Starbank at starbank.net on Facebook and on LinkedIn. Bank locally with Star Bank. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. That's my choice. Star Bank, Ron Shera here. Hey there, Bill Shirk, the man about the woods. The Minnesota Historical Society invites you
0: to take a historic adventure this summer. Become a member and get free access to 26 historic sites and museums across our state. You can learn about the places, people, and events that shaped Minnesota. Take in the sights at Split Rock Lighthouse. Explore state history at historic Fort Snelling. Learn about Native American culture past and present at Mille Lacs Indian Museum. Or see it all at the Minnesota History Center. Learn more and become a member. <clears throat> Come on. Learn more and become a member at mnhs.info slash adventures.
1: Ready for a women forward car dealership? Rudy Luther Toyota empowers their many women on staff in sales, management, and service. Whether you are looking for a new Toyota or pre-owned vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota has something for everyone. Every vehicle comes with a Luther Advantage. 10 cents off fuel and car wash discounts at holiday stations, Luther Advantage warranty, and five-day return policy on pre-owned vehicles. Located just five minutes west of downtown Minneapolis, off 394 and General Mills Boulevard and they're also hiring. Want to join the team but don't know where to start? Visit rudyluthertoyota.com today. And I have my last question for you is, how how is your back holding up from sitting and canoeing <laughs> Well, You know, I think about when I've kayaked for long extended periods, like a full day, and I stand up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been sitting for so long. Like You're a little stiff and your back is maybe a little sore from paddling so much. I can't imagine... Seventeen days. So of that so sitting. that's
2: another one of the ultra marathon paddling tricks is you learn how to use your core muscles to paddle and you learn how to rotate around your spine and you actually learn how to have leg drive. So we oh, actually have okay. leg foot braces in the canoe. So it doesn't look at all like a casual Boundary Waters paddler. You're using your whole body, and so what should really probably ache a little bit at the end of the day is your abs if you're doing if you're doing it properly. Okay. Right. Um, so if you were using too much arms or too much shoulders, you'd blow those out and it would be, it'd be bad. But I feel pretty good. The, the hardest we were part of the- are in great shape. I know
1: listeners cannot see you, but Scott's <laughs>
2: in great shape. just <laughs> well, tell you that. <laughs> thank you. Um, but the hardest part of the world record attempt really wasn't the physical. It was the sleep deprivation. I bet. Yeah.
1: And how many calories? Were you keeping track of how many calories you're burning per day? I'm I mean, so I always
2: say it's around 500 an hour while we're paddling. And we're paddling around- 16 to 18 hours a day. So whatever that is, it's so like 6,000 or 7,000. That's
1: crazy. Know, what were you eating? Were you like snicker bars? Were you going the healthy route? Like what were you eating to maintain calorie
2: nutrition? Well, we we our nutrition plan basically was that the support crew would prepare food for us and give it to us for 12 hours. And they would give us more calories than we could eat in a variety of forms because sometimes you're like, I need protein. I bet. Sometimes you're like, I need carbs. Sometimes you're like, I need real food. And sometimes you're like, I need candy and only candy right now. Yeah. Give me all the sugar and the M&Ms <laughs> in the world. And, it, and so we, I ate tremendously unhealthy things, but sure. I also ate really healthy things. And then we also, the other big trick for an ultra endurance event is to try to consume some calories in liquid form. So we had mm. these high calorie, like uh perpetuum Or or spiz or or yeah, yeah, that just have a ton of calories in them. And then at any given time something is gonna look appealing. And I just told my teammates and myself, like, you just have to keep you can't get too hungry, like and you can't get too thirsty. Like keep your hydration and your food tank as full as you can at all times.
1: That's so true. You know, I I work out a lot, but they always say like, your dehydration is actually from the day before, not from just that morning where you decide you're thirsty and you're guzzling water, it's all from 24 hours before that. So I'm sure you'd have to keep that in mind as you're Right, because in
2: an ultra endurance event, like if you're doing a six hour event, you can muscle through it even with some dehydration or lack of calories, but over 17 days, you cannot make any unforced errors. You have to put your sunscreen on because you can't get sunburned. I bet. You can't get heat stroke, you can't get hypothermia, you can't get dehydrated. So it's a lot about self-management.
1: And did you have any bad weather on this last trip? Like well, that bad was, storms, rain?
2: Well, yes. I mean, substantially, we were unbelievably lucky with the weather. But we had some big headwinds come up on Lake Winnebagooshish, which is a very dangerous lake, and people have died on that lake. Fortunately, we had a safety boat with us that could have rescued us. But um, we had big headwinds there. We had big headwinds in Lake Pepin. And then we had one, like, I don't remember if it was 24 or 36 hours worth of rain right around the Twin Cities. And actually, we were so soggy and wet and cold that we stopped in at the Treasure Island Resort and Casino Marina did you? and took showers. <laughs> yep. Did you
1: play a little blackjack quick no, there? No. <laughs> uh,
2: the, the, it turns out no the time. casino is like another mile away from the marina. But oh, sure. I didn't even know you could... It was really cool. It was convenient. I mean, we had to paddle out, out of the main channel, but the whole stop cost just like an hour, and it was definitely worth it.
1: Oh, my goodness. And where was your canoe built? Like, is that... In Minnesota. It was. On the
2: Mississippi River in Winona, Minnesota. The Winona Canoe Company is this sort of storied canoe company, one of the most famous canoe companies in the world. Certainly, the, for the Boundary Waters paddler, you know, there's tons of Winona canoes up there. And the canoe that we were paddling is a version called the Minnesota Four, the most, I think the most common canoe paddled in the boundary waters is the Minnesota 2. So, this is just a four person version of the Minnesota 2 made for the boundary waters, basically. We, yeah. So.
1: And was it, uh, what was it made out of? Is it Kevlar? A- it was, okay,
2: extra so light. I'm yeah, so it's Kevlar cloth that they then encase in resin or whatever and it hardens it. And it's the same thing bulletproof vests are made out of. So, it's very strong, but you can tear it. And in the attempt in 2021, we, uh, we cut a hole on some rebar in a bad marina in Illinois, and we started leaking. Fortunately, I had this really powerful uh, specialized gorilla tape made for marine environments, and we just slapped that on there, and, it, and then bailed it out the canoe and kept going. We actually fixed it while we were paddling. We never even went to shore.
1: Oh my goodness. You <laughs> need to do a commercial for that tape company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is so crazy. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Your story is so fascinating. And um, I appreciate you sharing it with all of our listeners and also um, introducing the sport to not only other passionate canoeists, but also to families and kids. And um, and if you're interested, listeners, in attending the race or maybe even participating in the race, um, where can they find the information? And,
2: and there, we also have a ton of volunteers. So there's okay, a room a for everyone. Awesome. Yeah. So they just go to twopaddles.org, T W O paddles.org and all the information is there.
1: So cool. And we're filming um, the race for Minnesota Bound. So we will also be paddling around uh, this Sunday, June 11th. But Scott, thank you so much for being on our on our podcast and sharing your story. It is fascinating to me. I um, I admire your tenacity and passion to do what you do. That's very incredible.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And last but not least, don't forget to introduce a kid to the great
2: outdoors.